If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. One of the things that I think is difficult for so many of us, especially knowing that we live in a sinful world, is trying to keep the peace with people. I don't know if you ever find yourself in a tense situation with others, but sometimes it's difficult to keep the peace, is it not? When we look at the world and we see a lot of the things that are going on, it seems that there's always some animosity that's going on between different groups. One, one group is pitted against another, and before you know it, relationships are fractured simply because you're not part of my group and my club, if you will. Well, Scripture has a lot to say on trying to keep the peace, and we're going to be looking at two things specifically today. Number one, the cynical hatred that Paul experiences in verses 26 through 30 in chapter 21. And number two, the uncanny deliverance in verses 31 through 39. You see, when we started last week, we were talking about the absolute necessity of staying consistent when faced with difficulties of misunderstandings of others and making sure that we ourselves have a balanced response to those that oppose us. We talked about the importance of fighting sin in our lives for the gospel's sake. You're not fighting sin only to be a better person. You're fighting sin because a holy God has called you to fight sin, and that in turn reflects Him well in your gospel presentation to others. The Apostle Paul here in Acts chapter 21 heading into chapter 22, was accused of selling out his Jewish heritage and reaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And he was given a proposition to respond in a balanced fashion by purifying himself and paying the sacrifice of the men there who had taken the Nazarite vow and showing the Jewish population that he was still serious about his Jewish background. Paul goes forward with the proposition of the elders at Jerusalem but in trying to demonstrate his commitment to his Jewish brethren, is unable to keep the peace, if you will. We're going to be looking at two things, as we mentioned earlier. Number one, the cynical hatred, verses 26 through 30. And number two, the uncanny deliverance, verses 31 through 39. Number one, cynical hatred, verses 26 through 30. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. So in completion of the vows of these men, there was a sacrifice that was to be offered, and it was offered by the Apostle Paul. Paul was also purified with this, these men, which means that he more than likely shaved his head and offered the sacrifice on their behalf. Some argue that Paul doing this was wrong, because Paul himself preached that Jesus was the sacrifice that covered all sin. 
But that's not ultimately what Paul was after here. The sacrifice was not one of salvific purpose, but rather for separation and service to God. In uniting those who had already trusted in Christ between the Gentiles and the Jews. We're talking completely, totally different people that Paul's trying to reconcile these things with. There's nothing wrong, by the way, for a person dedicating themselves to God by doing something that the law prescribes. As long as it's not mandated as a means of saving faith. That's important. For example, there's nothing wrong with following the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament, should you choose. That is not a requirement for saving faith. And imposing that on others as it is would be wrong. One may fast from things that harm their relationship with God, provided that they don't trust this practice as a means of saving faith. Saving faith does good works, but good works does not necessarily mean saving faith. Let me repeat that. Saving faith does good works, but good works don't necessarily mean saving faith. You see, once the vow has been fulfilled and the sacrifice offered, Paul, Paul here is welcomed by the entire Jewish community, right? Is that what it says? They all lived happily ever after. Is that what the text says? Absolutely not. Paul is met with utter cynical disdain and hatred by the Jewish population from Asia. Most likely unbelieving Jews who hated Paul as they hated Stephen for accepting a religious belief that overturned their Jewish heritage. They accused Paul of three to four things, depending on how you categorize them. Number one, they accused him of going against the Jewish way of life. He is essentially an anti-Semite, though a Jew by birth and practice. Because he turned to Christ. Number two, they accused him of being against the law. Paul did not practice as they all did, essentially denying the law of Moses, which was essentially promoted, by the way, during the, the Feast of Pentecost. The holy day which essentially turned into a celebration of the giving of the law to Moses to most Jewish people. Number three, in speaking out against the temple, Paul was falsely accused, as Stephen was, in the destruction of the temple and setting up a new religious system. By the way, Jewish people still hold Paul guilty of this today. In fact, you'll see similar arguments made by Stephen back in Acts chapter 6, verses 13 through 14. Listen to what it says. They also set up false witnesses who said, this is in reference to Stephen, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. What's absolutely fascinating is that Paul was on the other side of that false accusation against Stephen back then. He was with the multitude that were about to stone Stephen in that false accusation. What happens to Paul? The same arguments used against him. This very argument against Stephen was now used against Paul by these Jewish people. If you think people will not use similar arguments that they've used in the past, think again. The same arguments get brought up many different times. And they keep repeating themselves. 
In fact, history will continue to repeat itself because people are very much the same in how they argue against others. Neither Paul, Stephen, or even Jesus himself was advocating for the destruction of the temple, but merely stating what would come upon the nation of Israel and the sufficiency of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That was their message. The fourth thing that he was accused of here was bringing defilement to the temple by bringing a Greek into the area of the temple which was not allowed. You had an outside area that the Gentiles were allowed and then an inner court where the Jewish people were allowed. And they're arguing here that Paul allowed this gentleman to come in to the part that was forbidden for him, ultimately accusing Paul of really setting up this man to be murdered. In fact, there was very strict penalties on that. The Gentiles were allowed in the outer court of the temple, but if they came into the court of Israel, they were subject to execution. Listen to a statement from Josephus regarding this. The Romans allowed the Jews to execute any Gentile, even a Roman citizen, for, for proceeding beyond this low stone barrier. Meaning, the Romans were not going to step in and save somebody for crossing into what was considered sacred ground for the Jewish people. Think about it this way. The Romans who ruled over the Jewish population were respectful enough to give the authority of execution to the religious boundaries that the Jews had set up. They gave the authority up to execution should the religious boundaries be crossed in the Jewish temple. The question is, who's submitting to who when it comes to faith and practice there? Some things people don't think through. You see, these Jewish people had already had an encounter with Paul in Ephesus. And they had probably come around during that Feast of Pentecost and were eager to stop him from spreading this teaching of Christ. This last statement of defiling the temple would have probably caused any faithful Jew to stand in opposition to Paul and his message. This is where they make sure to bring Paul out to not defile the inner court of the temple. They were vicious and violent with Paul, grabbing him and dragging him out to bring him out to be killed. They weren't wanting to have a discussion. They were out to get him. It seems their cynicism to Paul led them to an absolute hatred for Paul. They wanted Paul dead. If this isn't a point of application today, the absolute vile hatred that many have for the other side, I think we need to take a closer look at our lives. You see, there's, there's this thing called wealth inequality that we always get pushed on us by society. If a person makes more than I do, they must have something wrong. They've done something wrong to get it, so I need to hate them for that. If they don't have as much, that means they're just lazy. And they deserve everything that's coming to them in life. My favorite is more than likely probably the one that stands up to corporations while sipping on a Starbucks and has their MacBook in front of them. I love the consistency in that one. I'm standing up for the little guy. Sure are. What about the racial tension that we've seen going on in our country? We're standing against discrimination of one race by discriminating against other races. By the way, has anybody heard of Black Lives Matter lately? 
Police lives matter lately. What's been going on? I haven't heard anything of that lately. Have people not been killed lately? Have things not gone wrong in our country lately? It's amazing the agendas that are pushed on us. To the point of hating people enough to want them dead. What about standing against government overreach? I'm standing against government overreach while asking the government to go after my neighbor because he disagrees with me politically. Oh, the Bible has so much application that we don't pay attention to sometimes. It's amazing the amount of people that wouldn't take the vaccine under Trump that said that he was a dictator, but now want to punish you for not taking it. It's amazing the hypocrisy we see in our country. Stunning. This vaccine is for your safety. Oh, you don't want it? I hope you die. That's where we've gone as a country. Here's another one, loving your neighbor. It's brought up constantly. This is one that's probably the most difficult one to walk through for me. Because it's caused absolute wreckage in the Christian community. Loving your neighbor means you must take the vaccine. If you don't take the vaccine, you don't love your neighbor. This is being preached from the pulpits today. You don't love your neighbor if you don't take the shot. Except, of course, of course that the vaccine can't stop you from spreading it entirely, but you'll love your neighbor better because you won't spread it as much. Loving your neighbor means wearing a mask. Except when I'm wearing a mask for prolonged periods of time may affect in other ways. I want you to listen to what one health policy expert's comment on masking children said. This is not Pastor Roman's comment. This is a health expert that actually stated this. The long-term harm to kids from masking is potentially enormous. Masking is a psychological stressor for children and disrupts learning. Covering the lower half of the face of both teacher and pupil reduces the ability to communicate. In particular, children lose the experience of mimicking expressions. Yeah, try vowels, right? An essential tool of nonverbal communication. Positive emotions such as laughing and smiling become less recognizable, and negative emotions get amplified. Bonding between teachers and students takes a hit. Overall, it is likely that masking exasperates the chances that a child will experience anxiety and depression which are already at pandemic levels themselves. Listen, church, let's not get self-righteous about whether we love our neighbor better than someone else. Or we believe because we don't wear a mask, we love people better than those that do, who don't really care, they're just blindly following orders. That if we got the vaccine, we love better than those that didn't. Will we follow up by blaming those that don't get boosters as no longer loving as they should? Let's stay consistent, right? So you didn't take the booster, now you don't love as well as I do again. We've gone mad as a society. It's outright pharisaical to promote these things to the standard of godliness while rejecting the call of the gospel to reach people wherever they are. Which means practice godliness by being humble, church. Knowing each of us will give an account for the choices that we make. 
God is not going to ask how you did with that mask based on someone else. He's going to ask based on what you've done or with the vaccine. Take your pick on the debate. Stop caring so much for others that you begin to hate them for not agreeing with you. That's where our society has gone mad. I care so much about you that I hate you now for not agreeing with me. We've gone insane. Lead by example. Not by getting bitter towards those that think you're wrong. Church, we must be prepared for opposition to many of the stances that we take. Some things are not worth fighting over. And it's even worse when you take the word of God and abuse it. You take it as a beating rod to someone. To prove that you're so much more spiritual than they are. It's disgusting. Let's not go about casting stones at one another as if we've arrived by our stance on masks or vaccines, taking, by taking care of ourselves personally. We should exercise, stay at home with the sick when we're sick, spend time with our loved ones when we can. As scripture says, as much as depends on you to live peaceably with all men. You're not looking for a fight. I know some of us love the revolutionaries. I get it. You're one of those, no one's going to tell me what to do. Well, someone is. It might even be your spouse. We've been so sucked in to what the world's telling us. And unfortunately, the person that says, no one's telling me what to do is typically told what to do. Now, we're going to always be able to live at peace with all men. Absolutely not. It's not going to be possible. It's not always going to be possible at all. In fact, we see Paul, the hatred that he's experienced, it was vile to the point of them seeking his death, even as he's trying to maintain peace. As happens frequently in Paul's travels, God sends deliverance, although this time it comes in a strange fashion, deliverance by arrest. Number two, uncanny deliverance, verses 31 through 39. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him, and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he had not, could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken to the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, 
I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. Paul is about to lose his life here as he's swarmed by the mob. He's falsely accused of being irreverent to the Jewish faith. Now, word reaches the Roman commander, which means that this was probably quite a scene because someone had to quickly report this. Said, listen, there's a lot going on over there at the temple. It's not looking good. It's a riot. He sends multiple soldiers over to deal with the commotion that's going on. Now, upon arrival, they are beating Paul, hoping to finish him off. But they stop when the soldiers are coming. See, church, God sends rescue through improbable means. Sometimes God sends rescue through improbable means. The commander, after arresting Paul, is hoping to get some clarification about the situation. So he asks who Paul is and what exactly he's done that's worthy of all this uproar. Now, with the crowd still infuriated, the commander can't get the facts straight. He can't really hear out what Paul's trying to say. So he brings Paul to the barracks, the fortress, if you will. The soldiers lead Paul safely through the crowd. It's divine protection from an enemy of the Jewish people that God uses here. As they're moving through the mob and yelling for Paul, away with him. Ultimately, kill him. Take him out. We don't want him back. He deserves to die. Something incredible happens when Paul is in the barracks. Paul asks to speak to the commander, and with the crowd away, they strike up a conversation. By the way, the commander is impressed by Paul's ability to speak, because he assumed him to be a revolutionary from Egypt. Listen to what one commentator says about this. An Egyptian who had claimed to be the Messiah had led a rough band of about 4,000 men out into the wilderness. And there had gathered about him about 30,000 with the aid of whom he had threatened the Roman garrison in Jerusalem. The band was defeated and dispersed, but their leader had escaped, and it was feared that he might appear again. Moreover, the cruel conduct of Felix, who was the Roman procurator at this time, had driven the Jews almost to the point of insurrection. As a consequence, the Roman captain, Lysias, his officers and men, were keeping a vigilant guard. On this occasion, when there were many thousands of Jews in and about Jerusalem, lest trouble should again arise. From the tower of Antinoia, at the northwest corner of the temple, and overlooking the place of worship, the sentinel could discover any disorder at once, and the soldiers could be dispatched to quell a riot in a moment's time. So in a sense, they were prepared for an uprising at any moment. And they were thinking this was it, with what was going on with Paul. Now, Paul, of course, was not a revolutionary, contrary to the assumption by this commander. And Paul replies with a simple response, that he's a Jewish man from Tarsus, and he's insignificant. 
he asks this commander to speak to the people on his behalf. As he apparently didn't get a chance to, as they're pulling him out in the mob and trying to kill him. But the automatic guilty plea. There's a few things to note here, and I think Scripture has so many amazing insights if we care to look. One of the insights that we see here is sometimes the mob is incorrect in its assessment. Let's try to say that five times fast. Sometimes the mob is incorrect in its assessment. And we should be careful not to just simply follow the crowd. Notice the group think here. Paul is dangerous. He must be killed. Wait a second. We don't even know all the facts. He's got to die. He's dangerous to society. Take him out. Listen, be careful not to fall for the headlines and who is dangerous in the society. The ones that usually are won't readily admit it publicly, okay? Do you really think the most dangerous people the last few years are going to come right out and say, hey, look, we did all these things to divide this nation. The real enemy isn't your family, friends, coworkers, neighbors. It's us. You think they're going to come right out and say that? Of course not. For crying out loud, we haven't even blamed China much. They are quick to dish out partial truths that they retract a short time later while moving on to the next narrative. How do we know that? The heroes of last year should be fired this year. Sick. Vile, disgusting. The very people that were caring for dying people in the hospitals are now being fired because they're not vaccinated. That's how disgusting we've gotten as a society. You're a hero one day, we want to kill you the next and lose your job. We don't want you around. We don't care about your family now. We cared last year, at least we pretended to care. Forget it. Another thing that's important to note here is accurate assessments are better in person. Accurate assessments are better in person. The commander was able to get a better understanding of who Paul was away from the crowd. In fact, from what he gathered from the crowd, Paul was an Egyptian revolutionary, which couldn't be further from the truth. Wait, you're not Egyptian? You're Jewish? I got this wrong? Be careful in getting your assessment of others without having a talk with that person yourself. There are many false statements that are made from assumptions people have that haven't been personally verified for themselves. You and I should make it a point to talk to people personally rather than going off of the assumptions that we may have. For example, what do I mean by this? A person who's struggling with addiction in the church that now seems to define them, have we bothered to find out the reason why or where it all started? What led them to that path? Do we know what happened in their life before they got to that point of hopelessness? 
We know people in a shallow sense because we're waiting for everybody else to get to know them for us rather than trying to get to know them ourselves. We want others to tell us who others are. We don't ask ourselves, that person directly. And the multitude of counselors is great safety. But when it comes to relationships, sometimes groupthink can be wrong. We need to be careful. Because divide and conquer is a strategy that's being used in this country right now. And unfortunately, Christians are fighting between each other and the world is guiding us in the wrong battle. It's important also, another thing to point out here, it's important at all times to be humble. It's important at all times to be humble. Paul's response to this false assumption is not, do you know who I am? I'm the Apostle Paul. I'm special. I'm a big shot. You haven't heard about me? No, that's not Paul's response. Rather, it's a humble response of, I'm a Jew from Tarsus. Really insignificant. But if you could, let me speak to the crowd. I'd really appreciate it. Paul responds with humility. Not this demanding pride that many of us would have. How dare you? Don't you know I have rights? I'm a Roman citizen. Is that what Paul responds with here, by the way? It's amazing that Paul responds differently here than in Philippi. You see, Paul realizes who he talks to. And he approaches the authorities correctly with respect. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians, when they're confronted, they are vicious back. They are not humble, they are full of pride, and they're quick to defend themselves with an eagerness to fight back. Church, we need to stand up for certain things, but there is a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And beaming in pride is not the way that God would expect from us. Don't you know I'm a child of the king? Jesus reigns. Forget you. Wait a second. Wait a second. Last time I checked, Jesus was a humble servant. Oh, he's coming back as reigning king. There's no doubt. But in the meantime, church, we are to be respectful. We can stand up for certain things, but we are to be respectful. And Paul here responds humbly. He doesn't have an I'm better than you attitude before the Roman leader. In a sense, church, what Paul's getting at here is I'm a nobody that God has saved. I really don't have much to brag about. I only have Christ to brag about is the only thing worth bragging about. 
Paul responds with humility, not this demanding pride that oozes out of so many of us when others get the wrong impression of us. In fact, Paul is going to lay out his testimony to the Jewish people and let them know he knows exactly where they are coming from because he was just like them. Disciple of Christ, you have nothing to boast about but him. Why are you trying so hard to make a name for yourself? Why are we trying so hard to make sure that we are properly understood every time? Like that is all that matters. We have nothing to boast of but Christ. In conclusion, I want to ask you a question. Are you trying to keep the peace? Are you trying to keep the peace? Does it matter to you that you live in peace with others? Is that something that is a priority for you? Or you don't care to the point of being offensive to anyone that counters you on anything? You just really need to give them a what for because they disagree with you. Listen, some of the battles you think you're fighting for God are definitely not for him. They're your personal little selfish desires. And you think that you're on team God and that God's behind you on it, and many times you're on your own. And some of the battles that we fight are not his battle. They're our own selfish, self-centered, sinful battle. Where we really don't want the gospel to go forward, we just want to be right. We tend to forget what we're called to be and do, and we want everyone else just to like us. Do others know you more for your political stance or your biblical one? The lines have been quite blurred lately, but I promise you they're not essentially the same. If you're more known for being a conservative than you are for being a follower of Christ, you may want to check your priorities. Now, maybe you're one of those that says, I get along to get, I, I go along to get along. I want to have peace at all costs, so I'm just going to compromise in every area of my life so that nobody hates me. Is that what Paul's going for here? Absolutely not. I'm going to compromise core teachings of Scripture to keep the peace. If that's who you might want to reevaluate what you're doing. By the way, violating one's conscience before God is a dangerous place to be. And unfortunately, there are many ways to sear your conscience that you may not even be aware of. Which is why it becomes easier to let go of certain stances in Scripture as you tolerate more and more sin in your life. Which is why accountability is so important in the church. And it's no longer practiced much.
Have you blamed the innocent for the sins of the guilty? What do I mean by that? Have you gone after people that had nothing to do with the situation that's hurt you? You realize many of us go after people that had nothing to do with what hurt us? It happens a lot more frequently than we would like to admit. We get angry at the wrong people. We get angry at our family members for what others have caused. We get angry at our church members for our coworkers and what they've done. We get angry at our children for our own inconsistencies. Stop blaming the innocent for the sins of the guilty. And at times the guilty would be you. When others question you and your motives, do you respond in humility or pride? Listen, every single one of us will be questioned in our lives. Expect that. It will happen if it hasn't already happened to you multiple times already. The question is, do you respond in humility or pride when confronted? Are you willing to go back and go, you know what? I was absolutely wrong in the way I dealt with that. Forgive me. Instead of, don't you know I had a hard day? Don't you know what I've been going through? I was late to work today. It's all been bad. This is why I'm the way I am. But rather we own what's ours to own and let God take care of the results. Respond in humility. You can't control what others think of you, church. But your sanctification in cooperation with the Holy Spirit matters and depends on you. You are to live a distinctly different life than others because God's called you to that. Do you look down on those that don't agree with you? Or do you realize that God is also working in their lives as well? One of the hardest conversations I probably have when people ask me, why are you not as upset with that person or that situation? And I've had to learn this over many years because I would be very quick to be upset at people that got upset with me or vice versa. I learned one thing that God is working their lives as well. And I know if I leave it to him and I pray for that person, that God is going to work those things out. Let me tell you, believer, the pain you're experiencing from somebody that's not saved, that's someone that's in the world, that hates God, that detests everything you stand for, realize that when you bring it to God, God will defend you a whole lot better than you can defend yourself. God knows what to do. Some of you may, it may take years for God to work on an individual that's done you wrong. But you need to be able to know that God knows best and he's going to take care of it. And he will make sure that his children are taken care of. 
which is why Jesus has very stern warnings for those that abuse children. You guys, God will deal with them. For a nation that slaughters the unborn, God will deal with all of those that are guilty. They will not be shown mercy in that. And it's not up to us to take the vengeance on his behalf. He will execute it perfectly fine without us. Church, we are called to live different from the world. Let's heed these words from James in closing. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 in the New Living Translation. Listen to what it says. Tying this all up. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. Is that not our culture today? But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. The truth is, church, we are called to a higher standard of living than the world. The disorder and evil in this world is evident through the selfish nature of man, only wanting to benefit himself, which is why so many don't care what happens to others as long as they're taken care of. That is not to be our heartbeat, church. We should not show favoritism in this church and in this world based on someone's status. We should be a church that sincerely cares for one another.